Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. And there were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our field and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and brought charges against the nobles and officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from your brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have been brought, brought back our Jew Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that you may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers, my servants, are leading them or lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of our interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing of them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garments and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So he may be shaken out and empty. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, that you are a God of grace and of love. And I thank you that you are a God who is more concerned with building people than with building walls and doing um, your work within us. Father, I, I pray this morning that you will help us to realize, Lord, that we are people who have sinned against you, Lord. We've set idols in our hearts before you. We have lacked uh, faith. We have been prideful. We've been self-righteous. And Lord, we have failed to see your face, Lord, throughout this week and to look to you. Father, for these things, Lord, we confess, Lord, that we need you as our Savior and we repent. Father, we thank you for your grace for these things, Lord, that though we are sinful people, that you are a God of forgiveness. And because of that, Lord, we have joy this morning. We rejoice in you and in your forgiveness. Father, I pray this morning, would you fill me, fill us with the joy of who you are. Open our hearts and our minds to listen to your word. And Father, I pray that you would cause it to take root in us and cause us to praise you as we ought to, both with our lips and with our lives. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.
As I've said each week as we study the book of Nehemiah, that this book is not about building walls, but building the people of God. Today we are going to see partially why the wall fell down in the first place. Jerusalem once had a wall, and the Babylonians and the Assyrians came in and knocked it down. And the Lord God allowed that to happen. And why did God allow his people to go into captivity in the first place? Why did God himself whistle to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians to come into the land that he loved, into the place where he had put his name and allow the people to fall by the sword, their cities to be burned to the ground? And why did those who escaped the sword then perish in sickness and starvation? And the answer is because his people were wicked. The people had forsaken not only their God and his command, but they had practiced iniquity towards one another. The two greatest commands in all of the Bible and all of the scripture, Jesus said that everything hangs on these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. If you do not keep the second command to love your neighbor as yourself, you cannot keep the first command either. They are both intimately tied together. If you sever one from the other, you have neither. You cannot love God and fail to love your brother. And you cannot fail to love your brother and be someone who loves God. The Lord God himself says, If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen, cannot love God who he has not seen. That's in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. And when the Bible speaks of love for neighbor, it's not just speaking of an affectionate feeling in your heart, but an active seeking their good and their welfare. That is what it means to love neighbor. So if we are not actively seeking the good of our neighbor, if we are not actively seeking the good of those around us, we fail at that commandment and we fail at loving God. For each person you meet is made in his image. And so in today's passage, the first thing that we want to note is that the people of God were destitute. Many of them were destitute. We've already seen that Nehemiah was having trouble outside the camp with Sanballat and Tobias and those who were mocking the people of Israel who were threatening to come and attack them. But that was not actually the worst threat to Israel. The worst threat was coming on the inside where the people were becoming divided because some were extorting those who had nothing. We know that Israel had fallen upon hard times, but this chapter lets us know how bad things were. They were about to starve to death. The problem with Jerusalem was not just that they did not have walls. They had no food and no money. And they were utterly impoverished. They could not care for themselves, and they were desperate for relief. And the Bible says here in verse 1 of chapter 5 that this situation led to a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. The word here said when it says there was an outcry is the same word used in Exodus when it said that the people cried out to God for deliverance when they were in the bondage of slavery in Egypt. No longer were they slaves to the Egyptians. In this passage it says they had become slaves to their own countrymen. And so the cries to God were not save us from Pharaoh, it was save us from ourselves. Our own brothers and sisters have put us into bondage. They cried out in captivity, and they had become enslaved. These were the people who had worked to build the wall. And almost certainly this extra time which they had spent working on the wall was time that they were not in their fields working to get grain, to work in the harvest. 
They didn't have enough seed because a famine had passed. They had to mortgage their places to buy seed. They were mortgaging their places to their brothers who had money so that they could afford to buy seed. And they didn't have time to till their fields and to work in the harvest because they were working on the wall. And those who had, once again, were taking advantage of those who had not, those who were working. So the people cried out against their countrymen, their fellow believers, their fellow Jews, not Babylon, not Assyria, not Egypt, their own countrymen. The people were destitute. That's why I'm saying this book is not about rebuilding the wall. This is about building the people of God. The reason the wall fell in the first place was because of practices like this. So one of the things the scripture teaches us over and over that the people failed to obey, not just here in Nehemiah, but before their captivity, was that we are to take care of the poor in the land. And when I say we, this command has never been breached by the Lord. It's never been overthrown. We are supposed to take care of the poor in the land. As I was studying this, I thought it would be a good search to do to, to look up and see how often the Lord God talks about in the Bible taking care of the poor. And I want to tell you that you can go home. It's amazing. You can go to, the, to your Bible online and you can Google anything in the Bible you want and it will come up. And if you go in there and Google the poor, what you're going to find is if I read to you this morning every passage where the Bible talks about how we are supposed to treat the poor, we would not make it to lunch. And my chili would not be as good tonight because it takes time to seep those flavors. It is everywhere what we are supposed to do in our responsibility to the poor. I'm going to read you some verses. This will be just a smattering of what the Lord has to say about the care for the poor that the people here in Nehemiah were neglecting. Exodus 22, 22 says, Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. Do not deny justice to your people, your poor people, in their lawsuits. Exodus 23, 6, you're not supposed to favor the rich over the poor. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 19, 10. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to poor to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Leviticus 19.15 When you reap the harvest of your field, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 23.22 If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and is unable to support himself among you, help him as you would help an alien or a temporary resident so he can continue to live among you. If one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells himself to you, do not make him work as a slave. Leviticus 25, 25 and 35 and 39. If an alien or temporary resident among you becomes rich and one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells himself to the alien living among you or to a member of the alien's clan, he retains the right of redemption. In other words, don't let your brothers be enslaved forever. I could go on and on. If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. De Deuteronomy 15.7 I'm skipping a bunch of things I've already skipped. 
There will always be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your brother and toward the poor and needy in your land. Deuteronomy 15, 11. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy. Whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns, do not take advantage of him. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 24, 14. Do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of a widow as a pledge. Curse is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. And all the people should say, Amen. Deuteronomy 27, 19. Now here's, here's a, a good one to close this on. This is from the prophet Ezekiel. Now this is the sin of your sister Sodom. When you think of the sin of Sodom, what do you think? You think about the time that they tried to have their way with the angels who came and visited Lot. Here's what he says, the word of God. This is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Ezekiel 19, 16 and 49. What was the sin of Sodom according to the prophet Ezekiel? They did not help the poor and needy. They were overfed and unconcerned. This was also in the Old Testament law concerning the poor. If you lend money to any of my people to you with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not charge interest. Exodus 23, 25. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. Leviticus 25, 35 through 37. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your poor brother interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you're entering to take possession of. Deuteronomy 23, 19 through 20. So you can see that what is happening here in the book of Nehemiah is exactly against what God had said, not once, not twice, but over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Do not take advantage of the poor. Do not lend them money at interest. This is why Nehemiah was angry. Is because how they were treating the poor in the land, that the poor were being exploited for profit. They did not help the poor and needy, which was the sin of their sister Sodom, which, by the way, got Sodom destroyed, and it got the walls of Jerusalem broken down. I want you to think about this because I believe that Nehemiah chapter 5 is a strong word for us in our culture because the dollar is almighty in our culture. The God of the United States is the dollar. If you don't believe me, listen to the debates that are going to be coming up. What are they going to be talking about? Economy, 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 economy. In fact, we had a president uh, elected one time, and the the, the, uh, sort of slogan they had was, it's the economy, stupid. That's what we care about. We, We talk incessantly about money, the economy, how to make more money. Did you know that during the early periods of the church, the patristic period and through clean through the enlightenment that it was taught to be sinful to loan money at interest for any christian 
to loan interest, to loan money at interest to anybody, not just believers. This is what the early church taught. It was taught this way all the way through the Middle Ages. In fact, from 1311, which is not exactly the Middle Ages, all the way to the 16th century, charging uh, interest was not just frowned on, it was considered heresy. Listen to this proclamation from the Council of Nicaea in 325. We talked about this a lot in our classes in our history, the Council of Nicaea, where they talked about Jesus being fully God. He is the same substance with the Father. Here's what they said in the Council of Nicaea. We talk about Jesus being of the same substance with the Father, but this was also said in the Council of Nicaea. For as much as many enrolled in the clergy, following covetousness and the lust of gain, have forgotten the divine scripture which says... He has not given his money upon interest. And in loaning money, ask the hundreds of the sum. The holy and great synod thinks it is just that if after this decree anyone be found to be charging interest, whether he accomplish it by secret transaction or otherwise, as by demanding the whole and one half, that means just a small percentage, or by using any other contrivance whatever for filthy lucre's sake, he shall be deposed from the clergy and his name stricken from the list. If you were caught in the early church all the way up to the 1600s lending money at interest as a priest in the house of God, you were defrocked and, and taken off the list. This is how the church dealt with lending money and interest. I am not here today to teach about economics or to talk about the right or wrong of how we do interest or loaning. But what I do want you to think about today is what drives our culture and what drives our hearts as part of it. And if indeed we are guilty of the same sins that our sister Sodom was guilty of and what Israel was guilty of in Nehemiah chapter 5. Is it true or false that most of our culture is driven by the idea of risk and profit? Is it true in our culture that we charge the poor more interest than we charge the rich? Is that true? It is true. Is it true that we pile debt on the youngest members of our population and our marketing is targeted to keep them indebted? Is that true or false? Is it true or false that it is more difficult for a poor person to get their power turned on in the city of Albertville than it is a rich person? True or false? Why? Because they are seen as risks to profit. They will run the credit score, and if your credit score is bad, you, you get charged more interest than you do if you have money. So it is more difficult to climb out of the hole because every single thing that you do is more expensive than those who already have money. I am saying this so that our eyes will be open to see what it is we treasure in our lives and in our culture and that what the Bible teaches is quite the opposite often of what we see in our lives. We, as a culture, have embraced the notion that profit is often, if not always, more important than people. We are not willing to take losses on behalf of those who have less than we do. This is one of those passages in the scripture that as you read it and as you begin to study how the Lord talks about treating the poor and the needy, 
that it is something that should unsettle our hearts about what's going on around it. People have to make a living. People have to survive. But have we been tricked by Satan? Have we been tricked by the ways of the world into thinking that this way of life is the only one there is? Isn't this something we ought to be considering as Christians as more and more pawn shops and check cashing places open all over the place? Are these places of good? Is it good to charge a poor person in need 120% interest a year for a small loan so that they can buy groceries? Is it fair for those who cannot yet get a bank account to be charged 12% just to cash their check which they've earned? These are things which we need to think about. How can we make sure that our system and our place is fair and not predatory? That we are not doing exactly as the people did in Nehemiah's day. What is the point of all this? That we're supposed to go out and get some signs and picket? No, I'm trying to stir your heart. If you need to go picket something, that's fine. If you need to protest something, that's fine. But if you don't hear this, anything else, hear this. The Bible calls us to generosity to the poor, not to be tight-fisted to them, and not to make their already difficult lives more difficult. Nowhere in all of Scripture will you find the first go-to answer for someone being poor is to blame the poor for being poor. And that is what we hear in our culture. It is not always the fault of the poor that they are poor. Once you get down there, you'll find that it is more expensive to get out than you might think. We are called on to be generous. And when Nehemiah heard that these people were taking advantage, after all, they were loaning at interest. The people were agreeing to the loan. The folks had no choice because they had to eat. They were even having to sell their own daughters and sons into slavery because they had nothing else to do. It was all fair and contractual. But Nehemiah was mad about it. He said, look, we've been working hard to buy our people out of slavery from the land surrounding us, and when we bought them out of slavery and they've come here, we've enslaved them to ourselves. This is not right. May the Lord God shake out anyone who does not rectify this evil. And what does Nehemiah call on the people of Jerusalem to do? Forgive their debts and return the interest. He called on the rich to forgive their brothers and sisters their debts, and he called on them to return the interest which they had taken, and they agreed to do it on oath. You remember in the New Testament, there was a man named Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man, climbed up in a sycamore tree for Jesus he wanted to see. <laughs> it's funny how things you learn when you're six years old stick with you till you're older than six. So there he is in the tree looking at Jesus. What was Zacchaeus' job? You probably remember this story. He's a tax collector, right? And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I got to eat at your house today. So he goes and he eats at Zacchaeus' house, breaks bread with him. The Pharisees are mad because he's staying with a tax collector, right? This guy, he's an enemy of Israel. He charges his brother's interest. He's a wicked person. At the end of the meal, here's what Zacchaeus said. Look, Lord, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, 
I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Luke 19, 8-10. Jesus himself, not just the prophets of the Old Testament, but Jesus himself over and over again was concerned with the poor. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God after all. When Paul wrote his letter to Corinthians, what was the thing that he wanted them to do? He wanted them to take up a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. That was the thing that he desired to do. When he left fellowship, not left in a bad way, but when he departed from Peter, Peter wanted him to go preach the gospel among the Gentiles, and everywhere he went, please remember the poor. And Paul said, that is the very thing we wish to do. This is something that we need an attitude change in our culture about. From what I observe, for most part, when we view the poor, it is with disdain. It is not with a helping hand. It is tight-fistedness and not open-handedness. It is when I help them, I am being robbed. Not, it is our duty before God whom we fear to help those in poverty. I will never forget I mean, I might, you forget stuff, but as long as I can still remember, I will remember this. There was a lady came when I was a summer missionary in Lincoln, Nebraska, and just to show you the longevity of this memory, I was 22. Y'all know that's been a long time ago. <laughs> I have lived longer since then than I was old at that time. Man. Anyway, this lady comes in her office, and she could not make her power bill pay. And she was from Romania. It's crazy I remember all these things. It's true. She had settled there in Lincoln, Nebraska. And she said, we have a saying in our church, when the poor comes to the door, we say, Jesus has visited us. And that's true. That's true. For did not the Lord himself say that whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you've done also to me? Does not... James say that true religion in the sight of God is the care of the orphan and widow in their distress. That's the poor. So I want you to think about this, Christian, as you turn on your TV and as you listen to all the debates raging. Who cares about the poor? Or are we only obsessed with me and mine? What will get someone elected or hated? The truth is that our physical poverty is only a shadow of our spiritual poverty. That every single one of us are debtors and we who think we have much need to be humble because we have so little. Jesus said without him we can do nothing. Without him we are like vines pruned from the tree, from the grapevine. And when the Lord himself said he has come to seek and save that which is lost, the ones who are lost were us. We were a people who had a debt we could not pay. Their physical bondage to having debt just to be able to eat is analogous to our debt that we cannot repay for sin. And no one could repay it. You were broke. You were not able to help yourself. You were pitiful. 
poor, blind, naked, is what the Bible says of us. We were, like the rest, children of wrath. With no way or hope of ever working ourselves out of the sin debt which we owed. And in fact, as we lived, we only grew more in debt. And the only way our debt could be paid is if Jesus Christ himself were to pay our debt for us at great cost to himself. The only way to pay our sin debt is for Jesus to give his life for us. It is a transaction whereby the guilty is set free and the innocent is punished. Never once did Jesus complain about buying you from your poverty. Never once has he asked for you to repay the loan which he gave you. Never once. He will not charge you interest. He does not ask for your work to repay the loan. All we owe is love and gratitude to a Savior who chose to save poor, wretched, like we. Jesus is still forgiving debts, my friends, and his view of the world may be different than ours because the world is tricky. And it tries to teach us things are important that are not as important as we think. And if we lay, allow men and women unfettered, unrestricted access to the ability to exploit the poor for gain, they will do it. We will do it, and they will say it is fair, for they have agreed to our terms when they have no other choices. I want to challenge you today and if you do not believe what I'm saying, just stir it in your heart. What is he talking about? Go and look and see what the Lord says about the poor. Go and see what the Lord says about how his people are to treat the poor. And this is why when people come into our office asking for benevolence, we do not turn them away, even when we think they're lying. <laughs> because in the poor business, Jesus has come to us. And those to whom we give, it is as if we have given to the Lord. They are responsible for what they do with our generosity. I am not responsible for being generous. I am not responsible for being fooled by those who would take advantage. Has anyone ever taken advantage of Jesus' kindness and goodness? They have exploited in his name. It's not the fault of Jesus for being generous. Brothers and sisters, I feel deeply that Satan would have us regard things higher than people. And I feel deeply he is succeeding. Trust the Lord. Do good. And remember this. It is an amazing grace that saves a wretch like me. You once were lost, but now you're found. You were blind, but now you see. And why is this? What do we say grace even means? God's riches at Christ's expense? How does Paul say we ought to behave? Remember, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor 
God in your body. You were bought. You were paid for. Your sins were atoned for. And it is a debt you can never repay. You have not been asked to repay it. Not as interest. Not for anything. Because God loves you. And remember that every single person you see, every person you meet, from the most wretched, sinful person to the greatest saint you see, is an image bearer of the king that God would have come to repentance and that God would have as head. Just as he loves you. Why did Jerusalem's walls fall down? Why did they get in such a destitute situation? Because they had exploited their brothers and sisters. Because they had not cared for the poor and the needy. Because they had forsaken the Lord their God and did not fear him. Let's pray.